Tonight's scripture comes from John chapter 2, 13 through 22, and chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Alright, I am a cripple tonight. I was playing basketball like I was 18 with some freshman guys and got reminded I was 36, so it's not fun. Um, Alright, welcome to RUF. Like, uh, like we always say, we really do. Man, we hope that this is a safe place for... You, whether you uh, have lots of questions, whether you have lots of doubts, whether you're really struggling with stuff, whether you're full of joy, but you can say, this is going to be a place where I can, I can examine the truth claims of the Bible, which is about Jesus, and see if it's true. And what we're doing is every week we're looking at the Gospel of John and really examining his claim that the stories that he picked, these true accounts... He chose to write specifically for this reason, that you might see who Jesus is, and by believing on Him, have real life. And tonight, what Hawk read for us is kind of disturbing, right? You see, Jesus brings real disruption, but by doing that, He claims to bring life. So let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, um, you, you are good. You are so good that you uh, sent your Son... Uh, to live the life that we cannot live, uh, to be perfect for us, and to die the death that we deserve to die. Uh, Lord, many of us here uh, tonight uh, struggle to believe that. Uh, we, we don't even like ourselves, and so we struggle to wonder how in the world the Lord of this universe uh, could like us. Um, but Lord, would you convince us through even a what can be a disturbing passage that you came to bring life. Um, so Lord, would you, uh, would you decrease me? And increase yourself so that people would see Jesus. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Alright, honestly, nothing I ever say is probably my own, but tonight, two people. Jason Sterling, who's awesome, former campus minister here. Stole a lot of stuff from him. Another guy named Ricky Jones, so give credit where credit's due. Alright, three things about Jesus and the way that he brings life here through disruption. First, the placement of Jesus. Second of all, the disruption caused by Jesus. Third, the zeal of Jesus. Alright, first, the placement of Jesus. Here's what I mean. If you're reading through the other Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark in particular, you'll notice that Jesus cleanses the temple there as well. But they record it as happening at the end of their Gospels. Actually, right before he's going to die. 
Here, right, we're in John chapter 2. John writes this account that Jesus cleanses the temple right at the beginning. So, without boring you, there's so much ink spilt over... So, are there... Did Jesus do it twice? Some people say, see, this is why you can't believe the Bible. It contradicts itself chronologically. So, I'll save you a bunch of time. Here's what I think. It might have happened twice, but I think it only happened once. But remember, John is telling you he chose things specifically so you might believe that Jesus is life. And so John arranges his book. There is some chronology, but he arranges it thematically. It can't, John came after Mark was already uh, written and everybody seen it. So he says, I'm going to arrange this so you see who Jesus is. And he wants you to know this is the real Jesus. Because if you were with us last week... If you aren't, reminder, Jesus walks up to a wedding and he changes water into wine, which is awesome. And now Jesus walks into a public place and flips over tables and scatters everyone. And John wants to put that back to back. Okay, um, you know in the fifth Harry Potter book, do we have Harry Potter fans? Harry Potter, okay, good. It's going to be very worried if Harry Potter wasn't cool at all this. So... Order of the Phoenix, and I'm not going to ruin anything. I'd never do that, okay? But Order of the Phoenix, there are two things that really annoy you as a reader. First, Harry is whiny, right? And he's always irritated, which annoys you. But second of all, Dumbledore, who is awesome, is very distant from Harry. And so this is what starts disturbing you, because up until the fifth book, Dumbledore, Dumbledore is always gracious, He's always kind. He's always the safe place for Harry. He's always pursuing him. He's always there for him. But in the fifth book, he's distant. He seems cold. He's not there for Harry. His conversations with him are short. He won't even look him in the eye. And you think, what is going on? But by the end of the book, and I'm not spoiling anything, here's what you realize. What seemed like two different Dumbledores was actually the same person. Driven by the same thing. That he loved Harry and he wanted to protect him. And the, and the Dumbledore, the always comforting, always there for Harry, and the one who was short, distant, at arm's length were actually the same person. And actually driven by the same uh, love and protection of Harry. It just took two different expressions based on what Harry needed. And see, that's why John puts this cleansing of the temple right after Jesus turns water into wine. Because look, if you were with us, Jesus, what he does when he goes to this public wedding and the wine is about to run out, which is the fuel of celebration, the fuel of joy, he injects joy back into the wedding and says, I'm the Lord of the wine. I'm the life of the party. With me is all-consuming joy. And then he walks into another public place and he shuts down the gathering. He brings this sobering stillness. Jesus water into wine. I'm the God of comfort. I'm the God of joy. Jesus clears out the temple and says, I'm the God of disruption. I'm the God who flips over tables. I'm the God who disturbs you. And it seems like two different people. But it's not. It's the same person. It's the same Jesus. With the same goal to bring you life. It's just taking different expressions uh, based on what people need. And John is forcing us tonight to deal with the real God, the real Jesus. Because what we are all tempted to do, here's my suggestion, is to make Jesus fit into my idea of who God is. 
rather than to let Jesus shape my ideas of who God is. And so John puts them back to back and says he's the same. It's a both and. He's the Lord of the wine and he's the Lord of the whips. He's the same person. And if you're going to know God, if you're going to enjoy God, if you're going to follow him, you have to know the fullness of Jesus. He will disrupt your life because he loves you that much. He will permit sorrow. He will seem distant sometimes. He will permit loneliness because he loves you. And that's confusing. And he will inject joy. He will bring tremendous forgiveness. He will bless you because he loves you that much. And part of, I think part of growing as a Christian, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, is starting to learn, like, which way do you lean? Because most of us are more comfortable with with one of these expressions. And you need to let Jesus confront you. Because some of you, you loved last week if you were here. You're like, yes, Jesus changes water into wine. That is awesome. Like, he's the life of the party. He brings real lasting joy. Yes, I love it. The God of grace. The God who covers all of my sin. The God who handles me with gentleness. He brings eternal joy. He never tires of forgiving me. He loves me with a never stopping, never giving up love. He loves me like a groom does a bride. Yes. Awesome. No disappointment. I don't have to take myself so seriously. But this table flipping Jesus... Is going to disturb you. Because you say, whoa, 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 what happened to the joy giver? This fullness of grace. What do, you, what do you mean Jesus confronts me? What do you mean Jesus calls for some things in my life to change? What do you mean Jesus says, no, you can't do that? You can't just do stuff just because you want to and you think it makes you happy. You're like, I, no, I don't like that. Others, I, you, you honestly were probably uncomfortable with last week. You, calling Jesus the Lord of the wine, some of you thought it was blasphemous. You're like, Brian, what if some people get drunk afterwards? Because you, you didn't make all the like, you know, you didn't tell people that getting drunk, getting drunk is wrong, okay? If you just tell people that Jesus is the life of the party and He's full of grace and He covers all of your sin and He loves you just like, like you are, Brian, people are just going to think sin's not that big of a deal. And that freaks you out. And the freedom that Jesus brings really makes you uncomfortable. Because you take yourself seriously all the time. And you think, yeah, 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 but but what about the Bible studies? What about the things I've got to do? But you know what? You love the table flipping Jesus. You love it. You think, I know it's, yes, Jesus, give me some rules. (laughs) Confront me. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me to take my sin seriously. I love that. You love hearing him say that things need to stop. But what John is doing here by putting them back to back is saying, if you're going to know Jesus, if you're going to trust Him, if you're going to entrust yourself to Him, it needs to be the real Jesus. He's the life of the party, and He's the one who will disrupt your life. That's my question. Are you serving the real Jesus tonight? Or have you made him into your own image? Have you made him just kind of like yourself? And the way that you know if you fashion Jesus into your own image is by seeing the areas in your life that you don't allow Jesus to speak into. 
And we all do it. What is it for you? We say, no, no. Jesus, you can't ask me to forgive that person. And at that point, when I close that off, I've made Jesus into my own image. Or, no, Jesus, you can't speak into my sexuality. Or, no, Jesus, you can't speak into my guilt. I feel too bad about what I did. I won't let you tell me that I'm clean. What is it? Does Jesus, the Lord of the wine, or Jesus, the Lord of the the whips, which one needs to confront you? And and allow you to embrace the real Jesus, who is good and loves you. So that's what I mean by the place of Jesus. Second of all, what is this disruption? What goes on here? Okay, we're told it's Passover, which means this is one of the two or three holidays in uh, the Jewish calendar where everybody would show up. This one celebrated what's known as the Exodus, where God took his people, the Israelites, out of slavery from Egypt by really by a lamb being slaughtered. And so they would celebrate it every year. People would travel from all over Jerusalem. And Jesus is there as well, and he walks into this temple. And we'll go into more of what the temple was, but it's the place where God promised to be. It's a place of sacrifice and prayer. And Jesus sees something in the temple that disturbs him, that grieves him, that actually it makes him angry. So that he makes a whip of cords. And look, that word, cords, okay? Anytime I talk about the Greek, okay, you can know I didn't come up with this. I reference somebody else. It is not like a whip like you think of that actually hurts people, okay? That word cords means uh, basically like a plant, okay? It was made of weeds. It wasn't going to hurt anybody. Its intent wasn't to hurt anyone. But Jesus moves with such authority in this place that everybody scatters. And he does, uh, he does flip over tables and he does dump out money. And everybody gets out of there. And the business of the temple, it comes to a screeching halt. And it's supposed to, I mean, if you read through the Gospels, I think this is the only time, one of the only times you see Jesus do something like this. And it's supposed to make you go, what's the big deal? Like, we are going to watch, if you stick with us, Jesus will... He will be with a sexually immoral woman and be so kind and so gentle and so patient. He will be so gentle with his disciples who never seem to figure out who he is. But here he observes something and says, "Uh -uh, this has got to stop right now. What is it? What does Jesus say? This has to stop right now. And here's the key. It's verse 14 and it's verse 16. It's all the business. Look, there's no problem in selling uh, and exchanging money for oxen, all that kind of stuff, right? People would travel from all over. This is the way that you could get an oxen. The problem was it was in the temple. And actually, that word temple there actually denotes the outer court of the temple, which was the court of the Gentiles, the place that outsiders could come in and worship the one true God. And that place had become a zoo. You see, the Lord, from the very beginning of the Bible, here's what he says. When he comes to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation so that you can be a blessing unto the ends of the earth. Jesus, the Lord, has always had being a blessing unto the nations on his mind. He told Israel, you're supposed to be a light that draws everybody in. 
And now that same Lord, when He walks into the temple, when He walks into the place where the Gentiles, the non-Israelites, the outsiders can gather to worship the Lord and He sees that it's a zoo, He says, this has got to stop. This has got to stop right now. It's why if you read Mark's account, Jesus says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Right? I mean, think about it. I, I was... Uh, I was having coffee with um, Annie Watkins, Dub, or whatever we're supposed to call her. Dubby, I think, is what all the cool kids call her. Um, and we were sitting there. It's Wednesday. It's noon. I didn't know this. A siren that apparently is a test that happens every week goes off on campus. I think I'm about to die. Annie Watkins treats it like normal. But it was so loud and so disturbing I, our conversation stopped. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't think anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't listen to what she was saying. Well, imagine that. If you're in the place where you're supposed to be making sacrifices, thinking about how my, the God is a God of mercy and praying, and there are cows bellowing, there is money clanking around, there are people bartering over stuff, it would be impossible to concentrate. And so what was being communicated to the outsiders, to the Gentiles, by this business was this. Gentiles, you are second-class citizens. Gentiles, you aren't really one of us. And when Jesus sees that, he says, it's got to stop right now. Now I wonder, does that surprise you? It surprised me. Of all the things that Jesus says, enough is enough, he says, this is it. That when God's people act in such a way that says to another group of people, you're not welcome here, you're not one of us, you're second class citizens in the kingdom of God, Jesus says that's got to stop. We need to let that sink in. Because this is Jesus' heart on display. Remember, Jesus shows us who God is. This is nothing new. God has always said, I'm a God who brings in outsiders. I'm a God who goes after people who are broken and sinful and are running from me. But if my people who claim to be Christians make outsiders feel like they're unwelcome, that makes God look like he is not a God who brings people in. And I will say, no more. Because I'm a God who chases after people. And this is where we turn our application on ourselves. I know some of you here just trying RUF out and trying out Christianity. So for those of you who love RUF, does RUF as a whole, does it feel welcoming to whoever walks in? Could you be from a different economic class, a different culture, a different race, and feel, I belong here. I fit in here. I'm wanted here. Could you be from a messy, sinful past that happened last night and you feel like, yep, this place is for me? And look, most of you know REF almost better than I do. I mean, I'm a part of it, so I'm part of the problem. And I don't know. I really don't know what the answer is. I know this. One of the ways to probably know the answer to that question is what type of people actually come and then stick around? That means they feel welcome. That means they feel wanted. And if we look around and everybody looks like us and is from our same background, something is going on. And Jesus takes that very seriously. He says, I'm a God of welcoming grace. 
You can even peel it back to an individual level. What about you individually if you call yourself a Christian or if you're a Christian or, or, or your, your group of Christian friends? Is your group of friends characterized by wanting people in? Or do people always feel on the outside? You know, does your conversation, does your attitude, does your facial expressions express you're wanted here? Or does it maybe overtly or even subtly communicate you're one of those people, you're out? And this is hard. I know I'm part of the problem. I just want to be around people like me. And Jesus says no. This is where I'll quote Ricky Jones. It is a continual temptation as a Christian, as his people, the church, to forget. Here you go. You ready? We'll just use RUF. RUF exists. You ready? To reach the campus of Ole Miss for Christ. To bless this campus. And it's just so easy. For me and for you and your group of Christian friends and for RUF to just be a place where you just feel better about yourself than those people. And when Jesus saw that, he says it's got to stop. When your group of friends or RUF, when it becomes a badge of honor and not a mission to love other people, we are becoming something that doesn't reflect who God is. And Jesus will disrupt it. He will. So I told you a lot's coming from Ricky. I remember hearing Ricky tell a story about, um, he's a pastor in Tulsa, about a member of his church who uh, was having to move and, you know, kind of had that dreaded conversation where he said, well, we're moving to a different city. And Ricky loved this this member, and uh, and you're about to hear why, but he said, look, I'm about to move to so-and-so city. Will you call the pastor of that church? And tell him who I am and tell him what my sin struggles are like so that I can't hide. Pretty awesome. And so Ricky uh, said, man, tell me this. Like, when did, when did you really change? Like, when did you go from being somebody who is, ne- who is always hiding stuff to being known as the person who, who wants to be known? And here's what he said. He said, well, I'll tell you, Ricky. He said, it is, it's when you brought me before the leaders of the church to finally talk about my sin and confess my sin and all the things I was deeply ashamed of. I came to that meeting with the elders of the church convinced that when I talked about it, I was going to be scorned, I was going to be rejected. And when I shared it, you and the rest of the elders, you wept, you prayed for me, and you hugged me. And he said that moment was the first time that I believe that Jesus was not ashamed of me either. And it changed me. Look, that is who God is. That's what He wants us to be. A community where you and your friends can bring things in your life that you are deeply ashamed of. And instead of scorn, you find weeping, you find prayer, and you find hugs. Wouldn't that change you? Or you come from a a different cultural background and you say, this is hard for me. I don't feel like I fit into this place. And instead of being told, that's ridiculous, you hear, oh, I didn't know. Tell me. I'm sorry. How can we do better? 
And I'll just say this. If, you, if you're here tonight and your experience of RUF or the church has been one where you have felt judged and unwelcome, I'm sorry. Especially if it's from me. That is not who Jesus is. Jesus always draws near the brokenhearted and the outsider. So the, the, um, the context of Jesus, the presence of him, the disruption, and quickly his zeal. How do we do that? How do we become a welcoming community? Well, after Jesus does this, right, the Jewish authorities approach him and say, what sign will you give for doing these things? In other words, they're saying, by what authority did you just come into the temple and do this? And what Jesus says is, well, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And of course, they probably laugh, they ridicule, and they say, are you kidding me? First of all, no good moral religious people is going to touch the temple. Why do we do that? Which is very interesting, because they're about to kill Jesus, who is the temple, right? But also, they say, hey, it took 46 years to, to build this giant building. What do you mean you're going to rebuild it? And John has this little note. He was speaking about the temple of his body. And then the disciples remember after Jesus came back from the dead, on the third day, they remembered this is what he was talking about. And so what Jesus is saying is this. I'm the temple of God. I'm what this whole place is actually about. The temple was the place where heaven intersected with earth. And Jesus is saying, I'm the intersection of heaven and earth. I'm God become man. When you see me, when you're with me, you're with heaven and earth. The temple was the place where God visibly dwelt, where you knew you could be near God. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. I'm God come to you. I'm God dwelling amidst you. I'm the place, if you want to worship God, you worship me. And the temple was the place where sacrifices were made. Because when you came into the presence of God, you knew that I am sinful, I am dirty, and I cannot go into the presence of God, so something has to die. And so blood would be spilt as you trusted that something else could die in my place. And Jesus says, I'm the temple. I'm the one whose blood will be spilt to make you clean so that you can come into the presence of God. Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. I'm the place of the forgiveness. I'm the place of unflinching holiness. I'm where you know who God is. And see, knowing Jesus is the temple, it changes the way that we relate to people. It has to. Because it works like this. Look, I'm about to bring it to close early because my leg hurts. Um, since Friday, since uh, playing basketball um, with some guys, I've been, in, I've been on crutches and in a boot. And uh, here's the deal. All right, here's a window into my, into my life. I probably could have gotten a handicap badge. But here's my idea. Nope, not me. I'm not going to be one of those people. I can handle this. It's just, you know, it's just a week. Uh, right? I don't need anybody's help. And <clears throat> hopefully you'll still love me. I'm also one of those people who used to. You're about to remember. Like, you know, I'd be in a parking lot and there's not many spaces. I'd see one. I was like, yes, there's one. And I'd see it as a handicapped spot and I'd be like, oh, Really? Like, do they need that many places? Okay, I know that's not right, okay? And I would get mad. Okay, well, today about 1.15, all right, I'm crutching it from Johnson Commons all the way to the pavilion. It's hot. I have back sweat and pit sweat. 
I can I can smell myself right now. I really can because of, because of this. My arms hurt. Actually, somebody even offered to help me, and I was like, "No, I got this." You know, because I would. And finally, I call Liza, my wife, and I just whine. I just talk about how miserable I am, how I can't even get around, how everything in my body hurts. And here's the deal. My attitude, and look, hopefully I don't say something offensive. My attitude towards people with disabilities has, has, has eternally changed. It has. Like, they ain't near enough handicapped parking spots on the campus. There needs to be more. Because it's miserable. <laughs> and it's hard. And what happened in this moment? My self-righteousness, my arrogance, <laughs> died. Because no longer could people who are physically hurting be those people, or else it's me. And compassion came out. And see, the reason that we don't love outsiders, whether it's culturally or because they're those people who are sinners, do you know why? You know what's at the heart of all exclusion? It's pride, always. Pride and insecurity excludes. Humility and, and humility and security always draws people in. And when Jesus says, I am the temple, he's saying, the only way you become my people is by the shedding of my blood. The only way that you come into my full acceptance and love and delight is by sheer grace. You come as a broken, weak, helpless sinner and Jesus says, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'll live a perfect life because you can't do it. And I'll die the death you should have died. And so the church, the people of God, becomes the only organization, that the only requirement to get in is to say, I don't deserve to be there. That's it. The church is the only place that you say, here's what's required. Admit you don't deserve it and you need mercy and you're in. Everybody who's a Christian is simply a product of Jesus' blood and mercy. And that's it. We're all people that don't fit in. We're all people that are broken. We're all people that aren't good enough. But Jesus' blood. And that creates a new culture. A culture of people that doesn't condescend to those people. To outsiders, but realizes, that's me. That's me. And Jesus sacrificially moved towards me. Not because I'm better, not because I'm more righteous, not because I'm smarter, but because of His sheer grace. And it creates a community of people that are desperate for mercy. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And people who need mercy are like, come on. I know what that's like. And at that point, any display of hypocrisy, any display of those people, is just replaying the scene all over. Jesus says, that's not who I am. I died to bring down the wall of hostility. My grace came to you and it flows through you to other people. So let me, let me just, I guess, finish with a question tonight. Do you know the real Jesus? I think deep down you know this is what you want. You want someone who will attach themselves to you and love you enough to say, you can't stay where you are. I'm going to change you. But you also want somebody of unending grace that will never stop loving you, 
that it doesn't matter how much you struggle, how much you're still dealing with that, His grace will always cover you. You need Jesus of the wine. You need Jesus of the wilks. Same person, same character. He loves you so much, He won't leave you like you are. And He loves you so much, He'll never quit forgiving you. Do you know the real Jesus? The one that you get to know through John too. You can trust Him. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, thank You for... um, for loving us, thank you for loving us enough to, to disrupt our lives many times, even in ways that we don't want you to. Lord, I just, honestly, I want to have, have Jesus and popularity. I want to have Jesus and arrogance. And Lord, thank you that you love us enough to disrupt that and say you can't have it. I want all of you. Lord, thank you that you're a God of tremendous grace that never runs out, that we can always cry for mercy, and it's always there. And so, Lord, would we be thrilled by both your love that confronts us and your love that heals us through forgiveness tonight. In your son's name I pray. Amen.